there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you love foreign languages and literature, and you're wondering how you might possibly make a living out of it, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest speaks six languages fluently, has written two books, one fiction, the other nonfiction, and was an executive at Google until she quit to co-found a startup that builds software for musicians. But before I introduce you to Jessica Powell, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my linguistically gifted latte lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jessica Powell, the co-founder of AudioShake and author of The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. It was the first novel ever published by the digital platform Medium, and The Big Disruption has been read by over 200,000 readers. Jessica is also the former vice president of global communications and public affairs at Google and served on that company's management team. She's also the author of Literary Paris, and her fiction and nonfiction has been published in all kinds of newspapers, The Guardian, The New York Times, as well as magazines like Wired, Fast Company, and of course, Medium. Jessica has also worked in marketing, translation, and policy in Europe and Asia, and as I mentioned, speaks six languages. Jessica, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready. So as you hear me read that introduction and talking about all the different kinds of jobs that you've had, what goes through your mind? (laughs) It sounds much more put together and intentional than I think my career ever was or probably ever will be, but it sounds very good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, before we get into your latest book and your time working at Google, let's kick things off with where you are now, probably somewhere that you weren't expecting you would end up when you were an undergrad at Stanford. As the co-founder of a startup called AudioShake, what is AudioShake and how did you come to co-found a music startup? Well, when I left Google, I thought I was going to take a few months off and go find myself in the woods or I don't know. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to give myself a few months to figure things out. I had signed up to do actually a a graduate program part time in writing. And as I was doing all these things and supposedly finding myself, I actually was fiddling around. I've always loved music. And a friend of mine and I have have always talked about music and talked about technology and music. And we were fiddling around with things and started to ask ourselves certain questions about what we could do with technology. Anyway, we tried a bunch of different things, but where we ended up netting out was we actually were really interested in seeing whether you could use artificial intelligence to break a song into 
its components, so its stems. So could you take a song from, say, the 1940s that was recorded with everyone in the room in one take? So like Billie Holiday singing, could you separate Billie Holiday's vocals from the drummer, from the guitar? And then what could you do once you had that song separated? So you could use it for sampling and remixing and instrumentals and karaoke. And that's where we ended up. And that's what we do. We use, we work with musicians and publishers and labels so that they can actually break their songs apart and use them for a bunch of different uses. So does that AI exist now? Did you all create it? Oh, yes. Yeah, we that that's yes, absolutely. That's what we do. And how long did it take to create that? And I guess I'm surprised that it didn't already exist. Well, people have been doing research in the field for a very long time. And audio engineers have always wanted to be able to break songs apart. It's really been recent advances in a field called deep learning that's made it possible. There's a lot of amazing researchers that are still doing work in this area. We are not by far the only ones. To develop our tool probably took us about 18 months. So we spent most of our time actually building the technology. And it's been only more recently that we've started to work with with actual clients and using the tool. Gotcha. Without jumping ahead too much, or I should say flashing back too far to when you were an undergrad, I want our listeners to know that you got your BA in comparative literature. Do you think the slicing and dicing and analytical skills that you learned and applied to that major have helped you in asking the right questions as you did in the buildup to founding AudioShake? You know, I think probably if I were thinking of what the most applicable skills have been, it's probably been more the practical stuff I've learned while working in business. All the years I had working at Google, where even if I was working in communications, I was still working very closely with people in product and engineering. Having said that, you know, I think my undergrad humanities degree was super useful, certainly while I was at Google and all of the analytical skills that go into, I mean, comparative literature is kind of an extraordinary major in the sense that you're given a whole bunch of texts that you will probably never see again in your life or use at any point. And some of them are incredibly dense and you kind of have to muddle your way through them and figure out what they're trying to say. In a lot of ways, what I studied was much harder than anything I had to do in the business world afterwards. But I think there's, there was, if anything, there was probably a lot of value to having these very dense and difficult texts, but understanding there was a way to get through them. It's not so different from being presented with a very difficult technical problem. But I would be stretching it to say that, you know, reading Lacan or Foucault had an immediate bearing on the work I do every day now at AudioShake. Okay. So do you think it was more being in the environment that you were when you worked not only at Google, but at Badoo, which... I'm not sure if it still is, but it was, at least when you wrote your CV, the world's largest social network for meeting new people. Yeah, uh, Badoo is probably best known in the U.S. as the owner of Bumble. And so it, it's now, it's no longer a social network. It's more of a dating it has a bunch of different dating apps and Bumble is one of them. All of everything I did in college, I think, was useful to what I did afterwards, just in that a lot of my major involved a ton of writing. And that was hugely valuable to me in my early journalism jobs, particularly because I worked in newsrooms where you had to file stories pretty quickly and pull them together pretty quickly, like at a newswire. And so being able to write quickly and synthesize information was absolutely a skill that 
I think I honed by doing a humanities major. And then once I was in communications, again, you're doing so many different kinds of writing, everything from press releases and blog posts and speeches and op-eds to internal presentations that being able to write succinctly, to be able to capture or break down and then recreate, I guess, or reformulate complex thoughts and make them into something simpler that a broader audience can understand. I think all of that absolutely was developed during my undergrad years and that I benefited from having a humanities degree. Also, there's also just a point which I think is really valuable in tech that I think humanities degrees so much of what the humanities is or the study of the humanities is about reading other perspectives and other people's perspectives. And that sounds super touchy feely. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. But I actually think being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes or develop some degree of empathy, I think the humanities are really valuable for that. And when you go into tech, it's very easy because you're dealing with everything in large numbers and you talk about scale a lot and people become reduced to just data points. Being able to still channel individual experiences and understand that different that users are different and have different needs and have different concerns, I think is incredibly useful. And it's something that we really are lacking in tech quite a bit. And we tend to build for the majority of users and build for ourselves. And, and that's, I think, also when we've run into problems in tech, it's been because of that. So I think humanities majors are very much needed in, in the tech field as well. Fantastic. So let's get into your time at Google. And I should mention, you actually first worked there in 2006 for about five years. You started as a senior manager of consumer products and moved into director of corporate communications and public affairs for Southern and Eastern Europe and the Middle East and Africa, and then moved into being a senior director of corporate communications. Then you left and went to Badu as chief marketing officer and went back to Google then in 2012 as vice president of global communications and public affairs, you were managing 200 plus people and reporting directly to the CEO. Can you take us into all of the different responsibilities you had to juggle when you were there? Sure. I mean, one thing I should just say, if probably if you look at my LinkedIn, it probably starts my Google career when I was a senior manager. But I entered at Google when I was 26. And I was, you know, I, I wasn't the very entry level, but I was only like a level or so above that. I think on LinkedIn, I just simplified and collapsed a whole bunch of years before that just because it started to get silly to list every rank below that that I had done. But I only say that because I don't want people to think that all of a sudden you have to enter in at a really high level to have a big career at a tech company or anywhere else. No, I, I came in. I Not only that, I came in as a contractor. I actually failed all my Google interviews. So do not give up hope. In terms of the job at the very end, when I was running communications globally, a lot of that job was strategy. So it wasn't so much the day-to-day tackling or handling of reporters or working on a specific story or working with a product team on how they were going to launch a product or the legal team and how they were going to defend Google in a particular case, but rather looking across the board at what was happening in the media landscape or perception of the company in different geographies and what were the larger efforts that we needed to do across different, let's say, pillars to advance kind of the company's story. 
So a lot of the work was on strategy. A lot of it was also operations, really, right? You know, you're running a team of, I don't remember what it was at the end, 250, 300, 350 people. And there's just a lot of people operations that comes into that. And how do you keep people aligned and coordinated? And what are the programs that you want to have running across your team to develop people's careers or to align their work with this larger strategic focus that you've come up with. And then there was a portion of it that was also working with other people on the management team for larger initiatives that we were trying to make happen across the company. So not just say the strategy for my team, but the broader company strategy and have different cross-functional initiatives. And then I'd say there was a portion too, which was just like firefighting, right? So some free happen. And yes, I would have people on my team helping out with it, but it maybe it was such a it's kind of a CEO level crisis that I would be involved and my counterpart who ran engineering division was involved or the CEO was involved. So there were, there were definitely certain things that were specific to internal communications or external that I would be involved with too. Gotcha. I was thinking it might be helpful to break down a little bit some of the work that you did on some of the initiatives that you worked on over the years. Among them, some of the key products that you were promoting, there was Search, Android, YouTube, Chrome, and Maps. Do you want to just pick one of them, Jessica, and give us a sense of all the different moving pieces that were involved in, first of all, devising a creative campaign, and then actually rolling it out. Sure. Well, let me, you know, it it was a really, by the time I got to the end, you know, my final stint at Google, I was not working on an individual initiative, which is probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) So let me come up with a sample instead. So say you were launching a product for, you were launching a product for the very first time, and it was going to appear at Google's annual developer conference, Google IO, which is one of the biggest, which is one of the biggest events that the company does each year. And there's a lot of developers that show up for it. But there's also a lot of users that come or that tune in on YouTube to watch it live streamed. So like millions of people. So you've got a product that you want to announce to the world. And maybe let's say it's a consumer product. So that means that people everywhere are going to want to use it, not just developers. So you've got this product, you're really excited about it. You've figured out, first you're going to figure out with the product team and marketing team, what is the purpose of this product? What What is the story that we're telling? Is this about saving people time? Is it about entertaining them? Right? Those are very different, what you call, I mean, this is jargon, but value propositions, right? The very different things you're communicating. And so you figure out sort of what is the core value of this product and how are you going to convince people that they want to use it, right? How do you bring out and show how valuable this product can be to people? And that can be by surfacing examples of how they might use it. It could be showing them how that product's being used through different kind of marketing assets like videos. And you're also trying to figure out how are the different ways that you're going to get this product in front of people. And this is you do in coordination with your marketing colleagues. You're figuring out what does the advertising side look like? And when then what does the media, this is the PR part, what does the media part look like? You know, it's very different to, to do an interview, say, in the Financial Times versus the New York Times versus Teen Vogue. 
right? Those are very different. All three of those are very different audiences and you have very different goals depending on where you're, where you're going and you're targeting different kinds of users. And then of course, social media too, right? Which again, are you trying to get influencers to use this product right at the time of launch? Are you trying to get a certain kind of conversation happening around it? Is that conversation a conversation that you want tech people to be having so that you're showing that tech people are really excited about this product? Or is it more something where you just want a lot of teenagers to be super excited about it, right? Like think about if you were, you know, if you had TikTok, what would like the press strategy look for launching TikTok and who would you go after for launching it? And then you've got to think through, okay, well, we're launching it at this big event and all these other products are also launching. So then you're also coordinating with all of your other coworkers in PR to figure out, okay, well, we're going to promote this product and we're going to do an exclusive interview in say the New York Times, or we're going to do this exclusive thing in Teen Vogue. And there's a bit of just coordination to make sure that you're not all pitching the same journalists or going after the same people. So it's a mix of storytelling. And then you've got all the stuff to write, right? The blog post and the the presentation that they're going to do on stage. So it's a mix of storytelling and writing, project management for sure, because there's a lot of moving parts and then working with reporters and answering their questions and making sure that you have good answers to their questions and that your spokespeople are trained so that they're not just going up in front of an audience or in front of a reporter and saying crazy stuff. So there's a lot of different things to think through. Great. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. You have actually worn multiple hats in the tech industry. You mentioned coordinating with your marketing colleagues and product colleagues while you were at Google. But when you were at Badoo, you were chief marketing officer. Can you explain to our listeners what the biggest differences are between marketing and communications? Well, a lot of the lines are blurred. I and mean, I think in a lot of companies, they are the same department, like a marketing and communications department. But I think the easiest way to think about it is that marketing tends to be paid, paid ways of promoting your product or an idea. And PR is what they call earned, right? Earned media or earned attention. In marketing, you are going off and figuring out where should we be advertising, right? Should we be putting in, again, to use kind of similar examples to what we talked about before, should you put an ad in the Financial Times or an ad in the New York Times? Different audiences. Or should you not be doing any print ads at all because no one in the audience that you're targeting reads a print newspaper and instead you should be doing all of your advertising via, I don't know, Instagram influencers, So a lot of that activity would be determined by the marketing department and the marketing department and the PR departments need to be aligned in all this because, again, it wouldn't make sense if the marketing team has decided the core audience for our product is 15 to 22 year olds. And they are going after, again, doing a lot of stuff on Instagram and TikTok and a whole bunch of different social media things. And meanwhile, the PR department has said, you know what, actually, we think the core audience for this product is 18 to 34 year old or 40, you know, 40 to 60 year old men. And we're going to put ads in the New York Times and we're going to run some billboards. Like those are two very, very different strategies. And they're not really one is not helping the other. And so they are different departments, but in an ideal world, the marketing and communications teams are aligned and they're going after the same crowd and they have the same objectives and they're just using different levers to reach that. So marketing is more direct. It's more costly because you are paying your advertising where the PR side, you are influencing, right? You are, you, you do not control what the journalist writes. You are talking to the journalist and you're hoping to convince them and get them excited about the product. But ultimately it's the journalist who's going to write the story and determine 
how that product is perceived. And that's also why journalism, right? Like an article that a really favorable article that appears about a product can be worth much, much more than say the advertising billboard, which is much more expensive because we tend to think that third parties or neutral third parties are going to be more trustworthy than say a company throwing up a billboard and telling you they're great. But you want both, right? You want you want both approaches usually. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why in the PR world, when you get a journalist to write about or cover your product or whatever the story is, we call it earned media because you've earned it by the sweat of your brow, I think. Is that the is that the genesis of where yeah. earned media comes from? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So I'd like to pick up on something that you mentioned, Jessica. You mentioned stories and you yourself have written any number of stories and you're a very prolific writer. I don't even know if you would characterize it as a story or more op-eds. You write a lot of them. And yeah. I think what comes through, you're a very entertaining writer, is you have absolutely landed on a voice that you've settled into. How did you find that voice? I have no idea. And if you'd asked me, I always liked writing. But if you'd asked me when I was 18, you know, oh, you're going to be writing one day. And what are you going to write? I would have been like, oh, well, I'm going to be like Baudelaire or Nabokov <laughs> or Anais Nin. It would have been something very like poetic and flowery and literary and so forth. And it, what I write doesn't sound anything like that. And I have no idea how it happens. I think that, yeah, a lot of what I write, and certainly in the past year, a lot of what I've published has been satirical, for sure. And but I also have and I've, you know, and, and I've written some short stories that I think even the ones that are serious still have a strong sense of humor in them. I really like humor as a way to talk to people, particularly when you're being critical about something. You know, I think people are much more receptive or, or they process criticism differently when it's inviting them to laugh at themselves uh, at the same time. And so in my book, The Big Disruption, it is very critical of Silicon Valley, but I think it also feels very authentic and I think also is very appreciative a lot of ways of the crazy, quirky culture that we have here. And so the reception from people working in tech has actually been very, very positive because I think they feel like it's an insider or someone who knows their world talking to them and not someone who's just lecturing them about trying to steal their data or ruin their elections or, you know, what it might be. So, you know, I don't know how I stumbled my way towards that, but it's the, I think the writing style that feels the most natural to me. There's, there's definitely an edge in the writing, but at the same time, it's designed to make you laugh. Well, it is very funny and that could land in a very flat way. But the fact is you clearly have a very good sense of humor. And I think some of the things that have happened to you have been really absurd. One of the things you write about is a time, and I'm guessing it was when you were at Badoo, uh, that you worked for someone who owned a hundred shirts in the same color and quoted Steve Jobs on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> and asked you, do you want to share the story? What he asked you, you should hand out? 
Oh, well, gosh, I don't know. There's so many stories. I know. I remember one time, and maybe this is in the essay. I can't quite remember now. I remember one time he asked me whether we should convert our app, which had hundreds of millions of registered users. I think he asked whether we should convert the entire thing into an anonymous sex club where people could just find each other in dark alleys and have sex with each other without ever seeing each other's faces. That was one highlight. There were other times where, I mean, the, the number of stories I could go on. Was that the one you were thinking of? Definitely. And the other part was when he asked you whether you should hand out dildos as company swag. Oh, yeah, that happened too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you if you kept a journal, but with some of these stories, how could you ever forget it? You know, I th this part is a little less funny. I some things were so over the top and ridiculous that I found them funny. So the dildo incident, the anonymous sex club, but there were a lot of other things that happened there where I saw other coworkers or myself mistreated. And that was very it was hard to watch, but it was also hard because it seemed so normal in that environment that you almost started to question whether you were right to be questioning it. And I did keep a journal almost to keep myself from going crazy because I, I started to mistrust my own instincts because I would flag something to others of saying, this happened, this doesn't seem right. And everyone would laugh it off, would be like, oh, well, you're, this is when I was in London. Oh, you're an American and you're very prude or you don't understand, you know, it's a dating company and therefore, you know, therefore we like, we have a different culture. And when I look back on it all now, I'm just like, this was crazy. This was a crazy sexist place. But at the time I felt like I was made to really doubt a lot of my instincts on that stuff. Actually, that makes me wonder, Jessica, if I should ask you what it was like as a woman in tech. And do you think that some of that sexism and the uncomfortable, almost Me Too-esque nature is something that our young female listeners should think twice about? Well, you know, on the whole, I had a great career in tech and had wonderful mentors, both male and female, and was given a lot of opportunities. I think in any industry, I don't think I've ever worked in any industry where I didn't see sexism or racism or, and then tech, I would say also ageism and certainly classism, right? I think it's pervasive in our society. And I think tech certainly has a problem, but it's not the only industry that has a problem. I, I think the reason it gets called out a lot more is also because it's always marketed itself as being so much better than everyone else, right? That they are, they're so different and we're so progressive and this and that. And then you look at it a second time and you're like, ah, but not really so different, you know? And so, yeah, no, I, th there's definitely a lot of moments where you were the only one in the room or one of very few and and felt a little more exposed because of that. And certainly my experience at the startup was, I'd say, an extreme in terms of a lot of what happened versus I think my experience at Google was probably a little more typical of what perhaps women might experience in tech, which is meanings to feel that at certain times that you feel rather minimized or alone or not taken as seriously. And that's difficult to handle, but I think a different level of problem than some of what what I saw at the startup and what other female friends have experienced at some of the startups. I'd like to think it's getting better because there's so much more awareness now of this problem. And I think Me Too has actually been really helpful in making those conversations more public. You know, when I think back to what we were just talking about, about my startup experience, when I was there, this was in 2012, 
like I said, every time I raised something that seemed wrong, I was told that I was the crazy one. And at some point I started just to wonder if I was crazy or somehow I wasn't seeing things normally. Whereas now, and it never, you know, I, I remember telling friends, men and women, friends, you know, talking about what would happen at work and everyone would, you know, say, oh, that's horrible. And particularly my female friends would be like, oh, that's horrible. Now let me tell you about this horrible thing that happened to me at work. And there was a lot of commiseration, but at no point would any of us have ever considered talking about our experiences publicly because we wouldn't be believed or people wouldn't be interested. And I think that's changed. Yes. For sure. So we should let our listeners know that they may be hearing the pitter-pat of little footsteps. And that's Jessica's young children who are playing upstairs in her house. So that's probably why you're hearing what sounds like drumbeat. (laughs) Jessica, why did you decide to walk away from your job at Google in 2017? Well, you know, I think there were a number of things. I don't think it's ever one simple thing. In my case, I would say I had been doing that job for a while. I was starting to doubt some of the substance of the job. I felt like sometimes I was defending things that I didn't entirely agree with. Not the vast majority of my workday, but there were some things where I just didn't feel like Google or other big tech companies for that matter were taking the issues as seriously as they needed to. There was also just a desire to do something new. I'd been working in communications, I think at that point for about 15 years, had gotten to the top of my field and wanted to do something really different. I didn't, I didn't necessarily have a problem with working hard, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be woken up at 11 o'clock or six o'clock in the morning. I only wanted to do that if I decided to do it. And I think I wanted to be a little bit more in control of my day-to-day life. And then I think the final part was that the part that I enjoyed the most about communications. So at the end of the day, by the time I got to the management team, I don't think my job was so dramatically different from say another person on the management team. And that could have been a head of engineering or a head of marketing or a head of legal. We all had our own areas of expertise, but a lot of those jobs are very much about strategy and coordinating with other functions. And so you're a little bit further away from what actually got you into that role, meaning the actual expertise that you developed over the years. And what I had really enjoyed when I was working in communications and was further down on the hierarchy was I really enjoyed working with smaller teams and working with engineers and the product people directly to figure out how we would tell these stories. And and I, I missed that camaraderie of working with smaller groups. And so I wanted to get back to something smaller. Mm, okay. You wrote a funny piece about this experience was entitled How to Quit Your Job in 837 Easy Steps. And one of the things that you say that was quite serious in the piece is that you were actually scared to quit because your thinking was, what am I without my job? And I have shared that feeling and that experience and in fact, didn't quit my job when I was at CNN, although I was unhappy in it because I was scared. I think it was slightly different in that I was scared. I couldn't think of anything else I could do. I had only ever been a journalist. So how did you overcome that? Well, I think it took me a while to understand what I was unhappy about. You know, for a while, I thought it was specifically Google and it wasn't right. I could have, I, I, I took me a while, but then I was like, you know what? I could go to another big tech company. And that wouldn't actually change the fact that I don't like being woken up at 11 o'clock at night, or I don't agree with the way these companies handle certain issues. And so then once I realized, okay, the problem isn't so much these companies, but rather 
me in these companies? And what is it that I want to change? Like, what is it that I actually want to solve for? Is it that I want more money? Well, no, it wasn't that. Oh, is it recognition and having a really big job and being a CEO? Well, no, not really that. That actually seems like a bit of a headache. It, it took me a while, but I finally figured out that it was really just control, that I wanted to be in full control of what I did every single day. And that I also wanted more diversity in my workday, meaning I didn't want to do just as hugely different as my day could be while I was at Google, I didn't only want to do communications. And so even now, you know, I, I have this company. And so I spend a lot of time of the day jumping between different tasks, because one moment you are, you're, you know, doing really dumb scheduling administrative stuff for yourself. And the next minute you're in some kind of negotiation meeting, and then you're focusing on the product, there's a huge different, you know, variation in the day of what you're doing. But even with that, I didn't want that to be something I did from eight in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. And so I build in time also to write and to take my kids to school. And just I have a lot more flexibility than I did before. So once I figured out what I was trying to solve for, that was actually the biggest hurdle for me. And being worried about the kind of identity part that you mentioned, I went and I applied to grad school, not knowing whether I would ever finish the degree or whether I would like it, or whether that degree would ever be useful for anything. But I, I signed up for something that once I paid the $100 deposit, and meant, that to me meant like felt like a commitment that I had to follow through on. So when I walked out of Google, I immediately walked into this graduate program. And it, it meant I had something to do from the very first day of leaving, which was important to me, because I was a little worried that just taking like a three month vacation to figure things out, that could work really well for someone, but that wasn't going to work for me. Like I needed something to channel my energy and to do each day. Absolutely. And I just, I think it's important for our young listeners, both the young men and the young women to know that their priorities and their interests and their needs are going to change and evolve throughout their professional lives. But for now, I'd like to flash back to when you were their age, Jessica, when you were an undergrad at Stanford. You majored, as we mentioned, in comparative literature with a minor in classics. And you also had studied abroad in Madrid. Did you have any idea what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Oh, no. I only majored in it because I got to the end of my sophomore year and didn't have a major. And the comp lit department was holding a wine and cheese event. And that seemed super fancy to me at the time. And so I went to their event so I could get wine and cheese. And then not really even understanding the requirements for the major, I signed up to major in it because I was like, hey, any department that's throwing wine and cheese events sounds pretty nice. And it wasn't until that summer that I discovered that you were supposed to speak other languages and like compare the literature in them, which was a bit problematic because at that point I was fairly monolingual. That is hysterical. So how did you get your first job and what was it? My first job was, well, I guess my first real, real job was in New York. I wanted to work, I wanted to be a journalist and I interviewed at three places. One was actually a translation job and I would have liked that, but then I did speak other languages. So one was a translation job. The other was, was working at food and wine and they actually interviewed me and the people who interviewed me had wine, like open wine on their desk. I mean, it seemed very decadent and wonderful. There's a and theme here, Jessica. Yes, I know. And and then the third one was working at a commodity, like an oil and gas 
news wire or reporting service. And the job I really wanted to take was the food and wine one, but it paid almost nothing. And I was terrified of being able, not being able to pay my rent in New York. And so I took the slightly better paying business journalism job. And that was how I got started. So it may have been then, may have been another time, but could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled? And some of us have been fired. I've certainly face planted at various points in my career and had to pick myself up and persevere. If you could share a story, Jessica, and perhaps a lesson that you learned in the process. Sure. I think, I mean, there's a number of times I think where I've had a difficult situation and then (laughs) screwed it up or muddled my way through. But I think one thing that really stands out was when I was at the startup, Badoo, and things had gotten to a point where, you know, they had fired almost all of my peers when I had started. They, they fired them in the first you know few weeks or months that I was there. And so I didn't feel like I had many peers that I could confide in. Meanwhile, everything seemed to be getting crazier. The work environment seemed to be very toxic. And I think most frustrating, I didn't feel like I had any power to improve things. So I saw people around me suffering. I felt like I was suffering. And yet here I was, even as the CMO of the company, and I couldn't do anything to improve it. And I felt like a lot of times we were thwarting each other in our different efforts and everyone was just trying to make sure that they weren't the next person to be fired. And so they would throw anyone else in front of them under the bus or whatever the right metaphor is. And so things were very bad. And I remember kind of falling apart one day in my kitchen and crying and just going like, wow, have I just completely failed at this job? Like, how is it that, how is it that none of this is working out? Why is it that I feel like my coworkers and I are all trying to, to undermine each other? And why is it that, you know, I have people on my team that don't like other, like, there was just nothing that made sense of it to me. And I was, I couldn't figure out how much of that was my personal failure and how much of it was the crazy place I was working in. And I really wanted to quit. And yet part of me had never quit. I mean, I never quit anything before and not in this way, right? I like quit jobs before when I was like, Oh, I'm done. This is not good. I'm leaving. But I'd never quit something when I felt like I was in the middle of failing it. And it felt like wrong to me. And I worried that I was abandoning people and I, I didn't know what to do. And then I kind of had this moment where I was just like, you can't, you can't like, you're, there's nothing that you can do to actually improve this. You've tried every single route possible and it's okay to quit. Like it's, it's, it, you need to do this for your mental health, you need to do this to like to move on. And whether it's a failure or ultimately a success, what your decision was in this moment, it's still the right decision. And I think being able to trust my gut that I needed to get myself out of there was right. And so I haven't always done this, but I do feel like when you have a really strong gut instinct about something, particularly when you have a strong gut about something being wrong, that you really should listen to what your intuition is telling you. Because I I can't really think of a time where I thought something felt very off and then somehow that it proved to be totally the opposite of that. Oh boy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I would add, and tell me if this resonates at all with you, Jessica, that we need to redefine what failure is and why the you know, it's seen as 
an F word like the F bomb because it's another way of saying learning. And you learned that you needed to listen to your gut and get out of a toxic environment and take care of yourself. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I think one of the things that the Valley for all of its many failings, I think that's actually one of the really great things about this place is that if people are sometimes too optimistic and too celebratory of kind of unbridled or unchecked success that has all of these consequent negative consequences that come with it. The flip side of that perhaps is also that people are very forgiving, I think, of failures. And when you see a company fold here, like a startup fold here, there are a lot of people that will be like, you know what, they gave it a really good try and how great it is that they tried to do something totally different, or they tried to really push forward a new way of thinking. And I I think that's actually really, really healthy. And in all the conversations we have about the failings of tech, I think that's actually, for the most part, a really good thing about tech. Yeah, for sure. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Stanford and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Jessica, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, I wish I had tried a broader like array of classes. I didn't think I deserved to be there. I didn't understand how I'd gotten in. I thought I was a fraud, all the usual imposter syndrome stuff that people have. But I think what's a problem is I let that dictate what classes I took. I figured out pretty quickly that I did really well in all the humanities and social sciences classes. And I was intimidated, though there was no particular reason to be. I was intimidated like the first time I went into a math class there. And I, there were just students there that had been doing, I don't know, multivariable calculus at 13. And I you know, had just done a very normal high school curriculum of math. And so I'd go into a math class and I'd just be like, I can't do this. And not because I necessarily couldn't do the material, but because everyone around me seemed so much more advanced or they had gone to much better schools. And so they had read Virgil and Latin or something. I think I let myself be too intimidated by my fellow students in those initial years and also too concerned about my grades. Again, I figured out pretty quickly I could do really well in one specific kind of class. And so I just kind of kept repeating that. And I didn't actually branch out and try stuff that I hadn't heard of before, didn't know anything about until really the very end. So I remember it wasn't until senior year that I took a single like elective quote unquote fun class. So I remember I took the one writing class I took in college. It was a poetry class. And I think I took that senior year and I loved it. And I wish I had taken more writing stuff. I didn't take a single coding class until my senior year. And I thought it was so great. And I wish I had taken more. So I really wish I had just thrown myself into more things and not cared about the grades or about how I would do vis-a-vis other people and that I just had explored more. Well, for the record, Jessica is proficient in HTML, in JavaScript, and in CSS. Oh my gosh. Where's that even? It's on your your CV. Oh no. I should probably, I feel like that's like almost like saying I'm like I'm proficient in Microsoft Word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was impressed. That's why I read it. And she's also got reading proficiency in Egyptian hieroglyphs. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) clearly I need to update my resume though, because I think that is from a long time ago. Well, I got to tell you, you are a remarkable woman. I want to thank you so much for your candor, for your refreshing honesty about what it's like to be a woman in tech and a college student who 
is feeling all kinds of uncertainty because the truth is most of us did. And those who didn't probably aren't as much in touch with their feelings as they should be. Jessica, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. If our young listeners want to learn more about how to break into the communications field, they should check out show notes for this episode to see if Jessica's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Jessica is the author of The Big Disruption, a totally fictional but essentially true Silicon Valley story. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.